Welcome back, everybody. Welcome, welcome back to the Tailgate Podcast. I am your host, Michael Quattromani. Thank you so much for stopping by. We're going to get right into the outline of the day in a little bit. Just want to try to catch up with you guys. Uh, I know I was absent last week. Didn't put out a podcast. Honestly, it's mainly because I ran out of ideas. I was like, what do I talk about? And then I thought to myself, you know what? What are you most emphatic about? What are your most emphatic points? And I'm like, you know what? Let's make a podcast. Why not? There's stuff to talk about. We got reflections on the NFL season. We got... You know what? This is going to be a very Boston-based podcast. But again, look, there there are things for all different teams. Okay, we, we got we got all different uh, teams. But I I am covering the Celtics. I'm covering Bill Belichick. But we'll get into the outline in a second. Uh, again, hope you guys are all having a fantastic, fantastic day. Um, I got into college, so uh, I'm probably going to be putting out more podcasts, more TikToks. Go follow TikTok, Instagram. Twitter, uh, I don't know, go follow, go follow the Red Zone Room 401 podcast, go follow that stuff, uh, probably going to be putting out more weekly podcasts, I'm assuming on the tailgate, I know I missed last week, I'm sorry for that, but again, I've got more ideas, so I'm excited, uh, hope you are too, here is the outline of the day, let's go, so starting off, we got the Carson Wentz trade, I know it might be old news by now because the metabolism of the sports media is crazy quick uh we're gonna we're gonna jump into the Carson Wentz trade hopefully you guys still care about it (laughs) um next though what does the Bucks winning the Super Bowl mean for Jameis Winston and more importantly uh what does it mean for his time in Tampa Bay uh because I I know before the season a lot of people were like okay Tom Brady's a buck is is that really going to do this much for Tampa Bay and obviously it did they went from 7-9 to winning the Super Bowl Uh, But I'm going to get into that. Then I'm going to talk about what does the Patriots season mean for Bill Belichick's legacy? I've seen a little bit of slander on Bill Belichick recently, and I want to address that. Next, though, got to give some basketball content. We are in the depths of the season. All-Star Week coming up pretty soon. What's wrong with the Celtics? That is a a big question going around in the NBA right now. Probably going to give my championship contenders to along with that. So if you don't really care about the Celtics, but you do care about the NBA, uh, make sure to stay and listen to my contenders. And if you don't even care about the NBA at all, don't leave the podcast by that point because I'm also going to be answering the last segment of the day. Why the Jets should keep Sam Darnold and address other pieces of their team rather than quarterback. So without further ado... Ladies and gentlemen, make sure to subscribe to the Tailgate Podcast. Drop a drop a like, a review, whatever you can uh, to support. I would, it's greatly appreciated. So let's get right into it, though. Carson Wentz trade. I think this is what they had to do. I, I really don't think that the that the Colts had a lot of options. I just feel like you get a quarterback in Carson Wentz that can potentially take you to the next level. He can. He's definitely capable of doing so. It's just obviously the question is, is he going to? Don't bring up Deshaun Watson because that's just unrealistic. Like The the, the, the Texans are apprehensive to trade uh, Deshaun Watson anyway. Why would they want to trade him to a defensive, uh, uh, sorry, a division rival 
in the Indianapolis Colts. That, that just They battled for the division over the last few years. It would just make no sense at all for the Texans to trade Deshaun Watson within the same division to the Colts. Makes no sense. Um, so get that out of your mind. And if you look at the remaining potential quarterbacks that could be on the move, it looks like Derek Carr and Kirk Cousins were both taken off of the trade block, so those aren't realistic. Jimmy Garoppolo, that's a lot of uh, salary for a guy who... You know, first of all, might not even be moved. Second of all, I think there is more risk attached with Jimmy Garoppolo than Carson Wentz because, you know, Carson Wentz has an injury history, but it's not as um, long as Jimmy Garoppolo's. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo has played an average of six games a season, which is just ridiculous. So, and then you got Ryan Fitzpatrick. Again, not a long-term answer. It, it just feels like Carson Wentz was the only answer. So, to, to trade for Carson Wentz and only trade a second and a third, potentially a first and a third, but right now it is a second and a third, I would say the Colts are winners. And, I, and I'm not necessarily that the, the Eagles are losers in this trade because I hate the idea that there has to be a winner and a loser. They're, they're can, both teams can be winners, and honestly, both teams can be losers. So I think both teams did win this trade, but in different ways. You need to realize... Carson Wentz wasn't going to go for anything more than this. You're not going to squeeze a first-round pick out of Carson Wentz. That's just not going to happen. And, and they, you know, the the, Colt, the the Eagles might have done it if they if that conditional second turns into a first. But the, the, there, it's not realistic to expect the Eagles to get much more than what they did uh, when they traded with the Colts. So, if you're here, here's the positives from the Eagles' point of view. Right, you move on. You, you get rid of that headache. It was evident that, and I'm pretty sure a report came out, that Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz didn't talk for 8 to 10 weeks during the regular season. I know that's an issue between them, but you, you'd be naive to assume that there isn't an issue between Carson Wentz and the front office. So it, it just seems to me like you, you get rid of that headache, you have your quarterback for the future, and you can now move on. I know that you have the salary attached to him anyway, but what would be better? Would you rather have Carson Wentz for the next two, three seasons making $28 million a year and carrying you to a 5-11 and 11 record? Or would you rather trade Carson Wentz to a different team, get a potential first and third round pick, uh, and then just let him walk after that uh, and actually get draft picks out instead of just letting Carson Wentz walk and you get nothing out of it? So I, I think the Eagles got what they could have out of it. Uh, and now they can move on for the future. They can draft younger talent, which is one of the biggest knocks on this Eagle team is, you know, for, for a lot of teams that are at, you know, the bottom of the barrel right now, they, they really don't have, they, they, sorry, they, they at least have some sort of young talent to build around. The Eagles have none. They, they have Jalen Hurts. And before the Carson Wentz trade, they couldn't commit to Jalen Hurts. So now they can, uh, and you can get, I guess, Jalen Rager is your young talent, um, defensively, you don't really have a lot. So I would assume that this first or second round pick will be spent, or they the third this year and the second or first is next season. Uh, but I, I'm assuming that they will spend their first round pick this season on defense um, because it just wouldn't make much sense to not do that. But honestly, any young talent with this team would help. So that's kindly what, that's, sorry, that's pretty much what I think about the Carson Wentz trade. I do think that, uh, if I were to put a grade on it, I'd put a B-plus for the Colts and probably a B for the Eagles. So, like, a slightly better move for the Colts. But then again, the Colts are in a much different spot. They're trying to win a championship. The Eagles are trying to just build for the future. So, they're in different... They're, I can't speak today, huh, guys? Um, They're in very different situations. They had to do different things to, you know, advance their organization. So, they did what they had to. Uh, so, I think it was a good move for both 
teams. I guess more so the Colts, but again, good move for both teams. So moving on, though, we got what does the Bucks winning the Super Bowl mean for Jameis Winston? Um, this is one of those takes where I really haven't released it anywhere. I really haven't talked about it on my Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, any other podcast on a man. I really haven't really talked about it. So this is the first you're hearing of it. <laughs> um, but to me, it means that Jameis Winston, he needs to be held responsible for not advancing the Bucks to the next level. And I, I, I've said this really at the beginning of the season. I said it more about the Pittsburgh Steelers when they were like eight and oh, or seven and oh, consistency is greater than anything. I don't care what you're capable of. I don't care. Oh, this, this, uh, I don't know. I'm trying, trying to think. Oh, uh, let's think. Let's think. Cam Newton in week two put up 380 yards and three touchdowns against the, the Seahawks with the Patriots. Okay. That's great. Well, did he do that consistently? Well, no, he actually, that was his best game. And then he didn't even do anything close to that. Okay. Well then he's not that good. Like, sure. He's capable of it, but can he do that or close to that at a consistent level? No. So it doesn't matter because Jameis Winston, of course, Jameis Winston has put together some unreal games, like some some really good football games where you, you say to this guy, okay, yeah, he's the future of Tampa Bay. He's going to be a beast. And honestly, he's put together a good season. Week, uh, his first year, he was a pro bowler. Again, not the greatest of seasons. I don't think he really deserved it. 58% completion percentage, 4,000 yards, 22 touchdowns, 15 interceptions. Don't know 84 rating. Don't know if it's the great most deserving Pro Bowl, but look, he was still a Pro Bowl, and you can't really take that away from him. So he's proven that he he can do it for a full season. But again, last year, 5,000 yards. Great, right? Here's a big gold medal star. Okay. 30 interceptions. You just you just can't overlook that. I don't care how many yards you threw for. I don't care how many touchdowns you threw for. 33 is great. Ben Roethlisberger threw for the same amount this year, and he's not even a top 15 quarterback. So you got to look beyond those things. You got to look at the efficiency stats. 60.7% completion percentage. That was 27th in the NFL in 2019. He just wasn't an efficient quarterback. He wasn't. And I don't need to convince you of that. We already know that. Obviously, we just know about the 30 interceptions. But honestly, look beyond the yardages, the touchdowns, the O-line, the receivers, the coaching, the defense, everything. Look beyond all of that. Only look at the interceptions. Only look at that 30 number, right? When a quarterback, it's a chain reaction for everything, okay? When a quarterback throws 30 interceptions, their defense is on the field longer, and they're more susceptible for giving up points because in more instances than not, the opposing offense has a short field, right? Then it makes it look like on paper, oh, the defense played really bad. When in reality, it was Winston's mistakes of turning the ball over that made the defense give up points. I hope you're sticking with me here. So when you bring in a consistent and efficient quarterback like Tom Brady, and for the record, Tom Brady actually had one of his most inefficient seasons of his entire career, but it was just enough to completely sway the team. Anyway, when you bring in a consistent, efficient quarterback like Tom Brady, that means that that he won't be turning the ball as much over, which means the defense won't be on the field as much, which means they won't be as tired and they won't be having as many short fields. The defensive numbers go up. And this is clearly evident because the Bucs added one starter this year on defense. One. There are 11 stars. They added one. It was rookie safety Antoine Winfield Jr. Look, Winfield had a solid year. It wasn't 
anything crazy. I don't even know if he's a top 10 safety, maybe bottom of the top 10, but like, um, they didn't do anything different, really didn't do anything different defensively. So it just tells you that Jameis Winston was the problem all along for this team. I understand. Well, Michael, I mean, come on. He threw for 5,000, but he couldn't do it consistently. He couldn't be a con- he couldn't be an efficient quarterback consistently. Sure. He had many games where he looked where he would pass like 20 for 24, 300 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Like okay, that that's great. He looked great for a game. But then the next game he'll come out, throw for, you know, 20 for 48, 400 yards, two touchdowns, three picks. Like okay, well, he had a big game, but they lost uh, 38 to 35 because he was inconsistent in that one game. You know what I mean? So I do think it was Jameis Winston's fault. And of course they did draft the left tackle, which helped out the offensive line, but the offense was the same. I mean, if you can't get it done with Chris Godwin, Audrey Howard, Mike Evans, Cameron Bray, uh, throwing Ronald Jones, if you can't get it done with that, then what can you get it done with? I mean, sure, they added Antonio Brown and Gronk. Gronk was a blocker for virtually the entire year, and Antonio Brown didn't make an impact until week 14. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm I, not even going to say that Jameis Winston can't be good somewhere else, but when you're in the NFL for five years and you were the former number one pick of the draft, it comes to a point where you can't really make excuses anymore. And I feel like Cam Newton's kind of in that same boat. Uh, of course, Cam Newton did play at a high level for a few seasons, but it's to the point where when you're 32, he was the number one pick of the draft. You've been in the year for 10, 11 years. It gets to a point where like, you know, Cam Newton's kind of washed, right? Look at Daniel Jones. I, I've never defended Daniel Jones in my life, but at least the guy's only been in the NFL for two years and for, la- for you know, he hasn't really had the greatest weapons of the ball to offensive line has been lackluster and he hasn't had Saquon for a very long time. So even you can, you can even make excuses for Daniel Jones being the number six pick of the draft. Um, it just not having a whole lot to work with. James Winston has had the tools. He's had the great wide receiver cores. He's had studs on defense that have made uh, takeaways for him and he just hasn't been able to do it. I mean, they had a plus 13 giveaway. That's nuts. So, I, I, I still think Winston can be good somewhere else. If, Sean, if if the conservative play calling of Sean Payton really did wonders for Jameis Winston and he's a starter for New Orleans next season and New Orleans has the same roster, which is extremely unrealistic because they're $96 million over the cap. If all that happens, which again, extremely unrealistic, then sure, I think Jameis Winston can still be okay. But I don't think he'll be consistent. I think from a season's perspective, he can be good. I think that the season numbers will look good for him, but on a game-to-game basis, I don't think that he will be the answer for any NFL team. I really don't. Um, so that's kind of like my long and extended version of my Jameis Winston take again. You can look at my shorter version on TikTok. I, I post clips of the podcast. Go follow it if you haven't already. But again, we are two we are two segments through. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day. Again, if you're listening this far into the podcast, it means that you like hearing what I got to say. Uh, count yourself lucky because there aren't a whole lot of people. <laughs>
Pop kidding. Uh, so if that's the case, though, make sure to drop a subscribe. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you, though. Uh, moving on, though, we got Bill Belichick's legacy. What does this very poor season by the New England Patriots say for his legacy? Bill Belichick's still the greatest coach of all time. I, I just I don't see how you can make an argument otherwise. Um, it, first of all, it's one year. I'm going to get into that in a second. But with that being said, Bill Belichick is one of the worst general managers of all time. And that you can't really argue that. He hasn't drafted a pro bowler since 2013. And his decisions in free agency have been subpar in recent memory. He's let some really talented players go where he shouldn't have him. Mean, he let Deron Harmon go for a fifth round pick. And Deron Harmon had a great, great season this year. Uh, I, I know they're already stacked at secondary, but... And I feel like you could have let someone else go, um, like Patrick Chung or uh, even Jason McCourty. There are other players you could have let go uh, and kept Ron Harmon because I think he still would have made a great impact for this team. I, look, just look at years ago, Chandler Jones put, was the leading stack leader for the uh, NFL for two straight seasons after the Patriots let him go. It just, just some really questionable decisions. Um, but first and foremost. Like I said earlier, one season does not define a player or a coach when they have a 20-year career. And in Bill Belichick's uh, case, he has a 25-year career. Second, the Pages roster was awful. I mean, before you say, oh, well, that's Bill Belichick's fault because he's the GM. I agree. And when you look at it from a Patriots perspective, it is his fault because he's the coach. He should be able to control the team. But if you look at it from a coach perspective, like, like saying who's the greatest coach of all time, you got to leave that at the door. You got to leave your beliefs about Bill Belichick as a GM at the door because, again, you're looking at Belichick from a coaching perspective. You're looking at a perspective saying he can't really control the players. So from that point of view, his players were very bad and he didn't have a whole lot to work with. So, just for example, Cam Newton was arguably the worst starter in the NFL this year. He was, in my eyes, a bottom three starter. And he obviously held the team back. There's no denying that. But on the subject of his offense, Cam Newton didn't really have a whole lot of receivers to throw the ball to. And that is really the only saving grace or, you know, point you can really use to defend him. And again, just if you want to uh, just reduce it down to the brass and tacks, Bill Belichick is a defensive-minded coach. And he held up his end of the bargain. With that, That's always been the case, though. He's always been defensive-minded. He's given Tom Brady 16 uh, top 10 defenses in his career. But even with nine opt-outs, including seven defensive players and two defensive captains, he still mustered up the eighth best defense in the league. I mean, that's got to count for something, right? This year, in my opinion, hopefully with COVID in the rearview mirror, with luckily we're getting a lot of... Uh, Vaccines being distributed across the United States. Hopefully with the COVID in the rearview mirror, the NFL can have a normal season. The Patriots opt-outs can come back. And more importantly, they can fix that excuse of an offense. And they will, uh, and this will be a more important year um, for the divorce. But on the topic of the divorce, you know, stop asking who won it, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick. Because they're in such different situations. Tom Brady walked into a dream situation in Tampa Bay. Let's juxtapose Tom Brady's situation in 2019 with uh, the Patriots and then 2020 with the Bucs. 2019, solid offensive line, not great. It was one of the worst Brady's seen in New England. Very shaky run game. Sonny Michelle was not that great. Uh, really no receivers. When you're a pocket passer, you need to be able to pass the ball. You had Julian Edelman who was banged up and no one else. Uh, the defense, obviously stellar. 
But just from an offensive perspective, they had nothing, right? So Tom Brady goes from that, has a down year, then goes to Tampa Bay, has a great offensive line, has one of the, probably the best wide receiver uh, core in the entire NFL, has a very solid and underrated tight end core, gets his old buddy Gronk back, has Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones, a great one-two punch in the backfield, has the playbook that he wanted. He basically coached. Bruce Arians revealed after the season that he would just let Tom Brady coach the team. So Brady had had his leeway with what he wanted to do, which he never had in New England. And Tom Brady had a great defense. I mean, Jameis Winston did too, but Jameis Winston obviously made the defense look bad because of his picks. But Tom Brady walked into a great situation. Bill Belichick, like a coach, not a GM, with a coach, had nine opt-outs. I already, I already, I already laid out the land for how bad Bill Belichick's situation was. So they were very different situations, and you can't say that Brady won the divorce because he won the Super Bowl, and Belichick was kept out of the playoffs. They're very different. I think what you have to do is let Bill Belichick coach the Bucks with Jameis Winston and say what happens. And it, of course, it's hypothetical. But I do think that is a playoff team. And I do think that team does go to the Super Bowl. Because I think that Tom, that Bill Belichick would be able to make the most out of Jameis Winston and change that play calling to more conservative and reduce the chances of Jameis Winston turning the ball over, making the playbook more conservative for him. I do think that would happen. Again, it's hypothetical. There's really no basis to uh, argue it on. But just don't argue who won the divorce because it's just, they're way different. But moving on, we got the last two segments of the day. Second to last, we got what is wrong with the Boston Celtics? Because to me, it is clear that the Celtics team is not as advertised. But what is the problem with them? The absence to me of Gordon Hayward and Brad Wanamaker is the thing that is that is hurting the Celtics the most. Who, Michael? Who are you saying? Gordon Hayward and Brad who? I know, I know, I know. You've got two... I mean, Gordon Hayward is is the main reason, okay? But I have a separate point about Wanamaker. In my, in my opinion, I think the Celtics are very similar to the Dallas Mavericks. You've got two great all-star caliber players, and the rest of the team is questionable. For the Celtics, you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and then for the Mavs, you have Luka and Chris Dabbs Porzingis, who's been banged up a little bit. Of course, the Celtics also have Kemba Walker, but he's shooting 35% from the field and is weighing the team down greatly. Pretty sure uh, their record with without him is better than their record with him. Uh, but for the Celtics in the Mavs, they're both they're both struggling this year because if you were able to stop their top two stars, the team can't win. That wasn't the case with the Celtics last year. If Brown and Tatum weren't playing well, Gordon Hayward, Kemba, or even Marcus Smart once in a while could pick up the slack. This year, the team runs through Tatum and Brown, and they live and die by their play. Last year, when the Celtics had Hayward, just plain and simple, it was one more all-star caliber player that teams had to account for defensively. I mean, the guy was no slouch, though. He averaged 17.5 points per game on 48% shooting. But on the topic of Brad Wanamaker, the Celtics' depth this year has been Awful. It has been a, a pure struggle trying to find players on the on the bench that can give you 15 a night, where it seems like on teams like the Jazz and the Sixers, they have three guys each who are capable of doing so. And to me, that is probably the difference maker. 
So I just think overall, if the Celtics are really serious about contending for a championship this year, the trade deadline is going to be very important. This is really going to decide whether the Celtics can make a push in the playoffs. Look, I think the East is open. I really do. I know there are some contenders who are looking better than the Celtics right now. Uh, and they are, and the Celtics really aren't even looking like a top three team in the East, but I'm not ready to say that the Brooklyn Nets are just going to take the East. That just, I, I can't say that. I obviously 76ers, they're a Joel Embiid injury away from not contending. Uh, and that's more likely than you may think. Uh, but look, the Bucks obviously haven't impressed. They've been awful against good teams and look, the Nets, I mean, Kevin Durant, James Harden and Kyrie are playing great. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like you have to you have to play defense in order to win championships. And their defense has been really, really bad this year. It's second worst in the East, third worst in the uh, sorry, yeah, third worst in the uh, NBA as a whole. And only two teams in the last twenty five years, only two teams in the last twenty five years have won the championship if they weren't top fifteen in defensive efficiency. So. If history repeats again, which I'm a huge believer on that, I don't think that Brooklyn is is uh, the favorites or should be the favorites to win the championship because, look, they, they, they can't play defense. And, and, and for a team like the Lakers, who are not only good on offense, but they're great at defense too, uh, actually they're the second best defensive team in the NBA, they can win, they, they can survive and win those games where it's like, 99 to 96 like they can force him to put up 96 the Nets are gonna have to put up like 120 130 a night because the, the the opposing offense the opposing team is gonna put up 120 125 a night so the, if the Nets are gonna win you gotta put up 130 and that that's a lot easier said than done uh because of course their top three players are arguably top 10 or sorry their three uh, players are arguably all within the top 10 players in the NBA with the exception of maybe Kyrie but I, I, look, it's it's tough to to depend on a team like that because at least the Warriors went in their heyday. They at least had players that could come in and play defense. You had Sean Livingstein, Andre Iguodala, even JaVale McGee in the center, Draymond Green. I mean, these guys could play defense. It just seems to me like the Nets really don't have anybody that can play defense for them. So that's kind of what I think. I think if you're the Celtics, you are one piece away. You are one Kemba Walker gets out of a slouch. Marcus Smart comes back great. And you're one bench piece away who can give you like 15, 16 a night from being a legit contender. That That's really what it is um, because there are legitimate, uh, you know, great just lapses in offense where the Celtics have both Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum off the court. And, and you can, they're just noticeably a worse team. And, and that's obviously like, oh, obviously, Michael, they're two best players are off the court. But there are teams like the Jazz who, when, when Rudy Gobert and when Donovan Mitchell are off the court, the Jazz still put up points and they can still be a, a high level basketball team. The Celtics just can't do that. And that to me is what the difference maker is. Uh, but moving on to the last segment of the day, we've I've got my reasoning for why the Jets should stick with Sam Darnold. And honestly, it's a pretty quick segment. So, you know, not going to take too, too long, but I think it's pretty plain and simple. The Jets just didn't give him a fair shot. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, so because they were picked in the top seven, you have to give them a shot because I'm obviously, I don't think that Mitch Trubisky is going to be, you know, a top 10 quarterback at any point. You you guys all know, I think Daniel Jones sucks and they're both picked number two and number six respectively. And I'm not buying into the, oh, they were a high draft pick. They have to pan out. But both of them have been given something. Like, 
Mitch Trubisky was given a great defense. Allen Robinson, a pretty serviceable offensive line. Dave Montgomery, Tariq Cohen, he's Jimmy Graham. He's been given pieces, right? Daniel Jones has been. I know I was arguing it different earlier, but even Daniel Jones is just awful. Like Daniel Jones to me just does not show any good mechanics whatsoever. Um, so that's why I don't think he's very good. Sam Darnold has actually played well in a very bad area. Uh, he's been inconsistent. But that's going to come with your situation. To juxtapose him to Jameis Winston, Jameis Winston was inconsistent in a great team, like in a great offense. Sam Darnold has been inconsistent in an awful offense. I mean, honestly, the Jets don't do anything well. The only thing they do well is losing. The Jets' offensive line, awful. Receivers, awful. Tight ends, awful. Running backs, awful. Coaching, awful. Defense, awful. Nothing they do is good. So if you're if you're the Jets... Why would you give up on a guy who you've given no chance? I think there, the if you're not getting Trevor Lawrence, which, like if they were getting Trevor Lawrence before, if they didn't end up screwing up the end of the season, and actually lost, and they were getting Trevor Lawrence, I'd say yeah, he's a generational talent. You have to get him, and you trade Sam Darnold for your second round pick, and you're happy, right? But I'm not willing to break the bank for, or I guess break your future, I guess. For uh, Zach Wilson or Justin Fields. I just don't think they're these two generational talents that are going to completely transcend your franchise. And they're not going to be able to transcend your franchise if you don't give them anything to build around. And honestly, the same goes for Deshaun Watson. I don't think the Jets should trade for Deshaun Watson. If you're giving up three, four first-round picks, I mean, you're giving up three potential or four potential stud players Honestly, let's say two of the four or three players turns into a like a like a, a real good starter, right? I don't think they should do it. That makes no sense to me because Deshaun Watson is coming into a team with nothing. He's gonna be in Houston all over again, except he's gonna have no draft picks in the future, whereas Houston does have a few draft picks. And Houston actually has, you know, Will Fuller, Brandon Cooks. They have players that Deshaun Watson can, you know, play with. Just have nothing. So if you're Deshaun Watson, I don't want to come to New York. If you're in New York, I don't want Deshaun Watson because your future is done, right? So, yeah, they have a bunch of salary. Spend the salary on young talent that you think can be a part of your culture and be a part of your plan for the future because I still think Sam Darnold can be a solid. I'm not going to say he's top 10. not going to say he's even top 12, but I think he can be like a Derek Carr. I do. I think Sam Darnold has that in his future. If you give him an actual offense, he doesn't have one. So that's why I think they should stick with Sam Darnold. Um, and actually, that's going to wrap up the podcast for the day. Again, hope you all enjoyed this edition of the Tailgate Podcast. Once again, make sure to go check out all my socials. We got the Red Zone Room Podcast. We got the 411 Podcast, both on YouTube. Uh, we got my Twitter at the Tailgate Pod. We got my Instagram uh, at tailgate podcast i'm pretty sure i'm not even sure we got obviously the coveted tiktok at the tailgate podcast go follow all those things go make sure to rate and subscribe so you are notified when i put out future podcasts and most importantly ladies and gentlemen go make sure to have a great rest of your day thank you so much for listening and i will see you guys next week